Asia Tech Podcast. Voice of the Asian Tech Ecosystem. We're back, Digital Lives Asia, Graham Brown, Simon Kemp. Simon, how are you doing? I'm all right. How are you doing? Fantastic. And it's been a month. It's been a month since yeah, we did the last one. Yeah. And you Pretty dazzled us oh. with statistics. <laughs> dazzled. On the way. Digital Lives of Asia. Where, where you're not in Asia today. You're, you're traveling no, all over, aren't you? I am taking the stories of Asia to the world. So I'm in London today. I was in Tokyo last week. And uh, I'm off to, uh, hopefully, off to Scotland tonight. But um, we are in the midst of the beast from the east. So we've got horrendous weather in the UK at the moment. And a lot of flights are being cancelled. So I'm slightly nervous that I might get stuck in London a bit longer than I expected. Right. Glad to be back. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, last week, I mean, last month, last... Oh, by the way, if you're listening and you missed the last episode, we've got it up now at atp.show slash DLA, Digital Lives Asia, so that's slash DLA. So I'll have both nice. episodes up when you listen to this one. That's a nice picture of Simon there, just so you know who's talking. <laughs> and a link yeah. to his report. We'll talk about that. So last time yep. we spoke, you dazzled us with this stat about one billion years. And then we, we sort of went into this, zoomed into social media. And some of the stuff that really surprised me, and I mean, I've been in this space for years, but you, you said about... Thailand, for example, being one of the heaviest users of social media in the world, Thailand and the Philippines. Yep. Yep. And we sort of compared that to Japan, which was sort of an interesting historical perspective as well, because we, we've both had experiences with these countries. And then yep. you talked a bit about the payment systems like WeChat, and we went all around the houses, and then we came back to one billion years again. So what have you got for us today, Simon? Well, I'm going to pick out one number again. So uh, we'd agreed that each month we'll start with one stat and then we'll deviate from there. I think deviate is probably the correct word. Um, So I think today I'd really like to talk about the number of new internet users around the world in 2017. So it was 248 million people who used the internet for the first time in the 12 months of 2017, almost a quarter of a billion new users. Now that number in itself doesn't mean a massive amount on its own but i'm sure that most of the people listening to this podcast will be aware of things like the next billion and it's that bit that i want to look at in context today so um probably a little bit more of a focused story on that one that we had last month but i'm i'm guessing yeah well we deviate (laughs) we just deviate the deviance it's we, we've had the first quarter of the next billion come online right. last year. Is it, so, is it when people talk about the next billion, they I immediately think of like Africa. And yeah, I think yeah, of absolutely. like you know the the rural people in Asia in the rice fields. Is that who we're talking about when you're talking about 250 million people, or is it sort of like grandma? You know what's going on? It's probably a mixture of both, but the significant majority of that 248 million is going to be in developing nations um there would be a little bit of an age whether it's the the very young starting for the first time or the very old that are just getting on as well um but if you sort of look at where the greatest number of those came from africa was the place that had the fastest growth that doesn't necessarily mean the greatest absolute number Mm -hmm. um but the number of internet users in africa over the past 12 months grew by 20 percent, which is pretty impressive stuff yeah so, yeah, I think, you know, we are Digital Lives Asia, so um, there will be a significant number Give of... Give us the Asia stats, Simon. That's what the people are crying out for. Yeah. So remember that, see, Asia's a little bit tempered by the fact that we've got countries like China in there yeah. as well. So it's yeah. not really going to be what you would officially qualify as... Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Developing. 
yeah. non-developed. But um, so internet users grew 5% in APAC in 2017, mm. but that was 98 million people. So it was obviously wow. significant. 100 million people. Yes, yeah, so that's 40% of the total growth came from APAC. Um, but it was only 5% growth versus the 20% growth in Africa because we already had quite strong bases in places like China. Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show. So are these people who've never seen or used the internet before? I don't know if it's they've never seen it. My right, guess is right. that they've probably seen other people using it around them, but this is the first time that they've actually got a connection of their own, whether that is them going into um, an internet cafe. These things still exist, apparently. Yeah. Um, but it's most likely that they've managed to get themselves a data connection to the internet on a mobile device. So right, that's right. definitely where the, the strong growth is coming through on the mobile devices. Yeah, I'll be curious to know what the sort of the human stories are behind that. Because, I mean, in, in our sort of looking at it through our context, it's like we go what, obviously way back to when we first used the Internet. So to think that somebody like us has just discovered the Internet, it's like, well, obviously, yeah. you know, what have you been doing for the last 20 years? But I guess a lot of these people haven't had the money or the technology to access the Internet. That's what we're talking about. Or they've just been holding on. They've been holding out for a long time. They've finally yes. given up. But it's really interesting. So um, I was reading some fascinating research by UNESCO, United Nations, all these great bodies that are getting involved in trying to get the rest of the world online, because there are obviously socioeconomic benefits to getting people online as well as the, the personal benefits. Mm. And they're talking about the fact that there are still significant swathes of places like India where people aren't even aware of the internet. You know, they wow. don't know what it is and the, it exists. And that just right, blows right. my mind because obviously, you know, you and I probably spend all of our waking lives doing something connected whether yeah. it's we're out, out on the street and we're using a map service that's connected to the internet or we're reading about stuff on the news or we're playing games and you know they're all connected so this idea that there are still people out there who don't know the internet exists it, it completely changes your perspective of what that next billion challenge is all about mm -hmm. now obviously there are still going to be some people that don't want to use the internet and i think we need to recognize that that is a reality but they're going to be in the significant minority we're going to be talking about single digit percentages here. right 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 yeah exactly they're they're rounding errors I, I'm sort of you know you go back to talking about people who are sort of coming online for the first time it, mm. yeah I mean let, let's sort of talk about who those people are so there's a hundred million in Asia obviously Africa you talk about this huge amounts coming online we're focused on Asia I you know you talk about India as an example people who don't know what the internet is I'm just sort of scrambling around as we're talking looking for literacy rates because I wonder how much of that yep. has sort of connected that's actually one of the things I really wanted to talk about today. So literacy rates are a very, very important part. So there are broadly four barriers to people coming online. Right. Literacy in its sort of broadest sense is one of them. Let's come back to that in just a minute because it's essential. Um, you've then got technology, obviously. So is there a, a data service available in my area? Are there even mobile antennas that can project data transmission to my device? Do I have a device? Do I even have access to electricity? Mm. So some very fundamental technology and infrastructure issues that people need to be aware of. Mm. You've then got this sort of really interesting sort of language issue. So the vast majority of the content on in, the internet is still in English. Um, and it's quite disturbing that it, even if you are somebody who has a high level of literacy in your own language, if you don't speak English, then mm. you've lost a vast majority of the sort of value and the content that is available on the internet today. Yeah. So those things need to change. Um, you've then you know, you've got things like motivations. Why do these people want to come online? So what's really interesting is if you look at a lot of the people that came online over the past 12 months for the first time, the biggest driver sort of still is social media 
not in terms of I want to go onto Instagram and post photos of my lunch. Um, it's much more about I want that would to be, be scary able... if they're doing that in rural <laughs> India. This is what I mean. This is the first thing I've done on the internet. <laughs> but you'd be surprised; it's quite disturbing. Um, but it's the majority of it is sort of messenger communication with friends and family. Um, sometimes also also from a business perspective. So yeah. a big driver, even in rural areas, remember that there's still a very important sort of business to business element, even for people who are farmers and whatever else. So a big driver of that is being able to stay in touch with the people you care about simply while on the go and you know social media is by far the most efficient and effective way of doing that of anything we've ever had as human beings um so i think you know we when we talk about social media in a western context we often do get into that photos of my lunch and posting kitten videos and i think yeah, we yeah. miss the societal value that social media brings as well and oh boy they've happen. got a long way to go until they get to our stage that's the full evolution <laughs> isn't it when they started posting pictures of what they drink at starbucks just have a look yeah. here. Um, can you, can you, just out of curiosity, because obviously you've sort of gone into this a bit deeper than I have. Can you use Facebook if you're illiterate? Mm, you're going to find it quite challenging. You can, right. but a lot of that is going to be guesswork. And so, like I said, this is one of the bits that I really want to look at in detail with you today, because it is um, essential for every single person that uses the internet and who will use the internet over the next five years. So I want to stress before we go into the literacy story, this is not a developing nations story. This is a story about how the entire future of the internet is going to change in Asia, but everywhere else as well. So literacy, right? You've got obviously varying levels of literacy around the world, and that gets a little bit challenging. Um, in Africa, you've got certain places in Central and uh, Western Africa where literacy rates are still below 50%, yeah. which is... Niger, looking at that. So I'm armed with the list right in front of me. So go on, <laughs> try me. Cool. Niger, 27% literacy rate. How about that? And it's it's even more terrifying when you look at broken down by gender. So where literacy levels are lower, they're even lower for women. And, you know, this is a thing that as a global society, we need to fix. We need to address this. This is not acceptable. 11% Um, in Niger. That's just for females. You're right. I didn't realize it was female, male broke, you know, breakdown, but that is, well, there's going to be cultural and societal Um, reasons behind this. I'm not going to make any judgments on those because I don't have a sufficient understanding of the cultures there, but it does unsettle me. I don't think that that is a Mm. a justifiable balance anywhere. Um, But yeah, so if if you look at Western Africa as an entire region, um, less than half of the female population has a sufficient level of literacy that they can be considered Mm. literate. And that, that is obviously in any language, not just in English, and I mentioned earlier the importance of being able to speak English if you need to use the internet. So back to your question about Facebook. Do, can you use it if mm. you're illiterate? So if you think about the way that the internet, let's come back to Facebook in just a minute, but the very basic fundamentals of the internet, how does the internet work? Right? It's a whole series of interlinked pages. Well, that's the web, sorry, rather than the internet, but let's, let's look at the web. So if you think about how do you use the web, you've got two choices to get content. Either you type in a URL or you click on a hyperlink. Both of right. those things require you to have at least a basic level of literacy. You need to be able to read the hyperlink or you need to be able to type characters in in a sufficient mm. level of non-challenge that you can type a url especially if you think about the longer urls um you know i mean you, you could do it character by character if you really really wanted to but then you would inevitably load up some kind of content that had more text on it and it's probably still going to be a real challenge to make sense of that so the internet is out of reach for most people not because just the cost of data or whatever else but just because even once you've got it what do you do with it yeah 
Yeah. It's a bit like giving somebody a book. You know, they, they, they might be able to make sense of bits of it or they might be able to look at some of the pictures, but the real value of stuff in there is usually wanting to be able to consume the various multimedia concepts within all of that stuff. Even finding a video. So video is obviously a really, really important opportunity for people to be able to access better content on the internet. But if you think about the way YouTube works at the moment, you've got to search for something which yeah. is text-based and you've got to be able to read what the video is about in the little blurb next to it. You could just try your luck and keep on clicking on videos until you got something. But you know, that's going to have to change as well. Do, they, do these guys like YouTube and Facebook have a uh, do they have like an illiterate version i mean i, I wonder if somebody is listening who knows something about this well you, you're you're setting me up perfectly here. Am I? <laughs> sorry I did, we, we didn't rehearse this beforehand we didn't sync this at all we're just but, on the same wavelength this is the really interesting bit and this is this is where i come back to what i said about this affects everybody not just developing nations you look at google facebook amazon apple the four horsemen as scott galloway calls them um so those are the big big internet companies that are shaping most of the future of where the internet is going. Obviously, there's lots of other people in there too, but they're the big ones. They're the ones we look to for the next step, right? Mm. Those four companies need to prove to their shareholders that they are going to gain a disproportionate share of those next billion users for those shareholders to be happy. And if you think about that, right, so if, I, if I'm if i Facebook and I say I really want to get the next billion users in, I've got two choices. Either I build a separate Facebook for them which involves a significant amount of development time and cost and then the maintenance cost. And I've got to get two separate teams and got to explain it to investors. Realistically, if you think about the way that most of these companies work, where they're really driven by economies of scale, they're not going to want to do that. Now, I don't have any of the sort of secret roadmaps from these companies, so I can't say this with 100% confidence. But if I was sort of managing the finances of those companies, I'd go, do you know what? Let's create versions of our services that cater to everybody, one single service that everybody can use. But right. in order to do that, that service is going to have to cater to the lowest common denominator. So it's going to need to be something that is accessible to people with lower levels of literacy. And that's where it gets really exciting. If you look at the apps that you've got on your phone today, even, even I'm in looking, Tokyo, I'm looking. here I am in London, you open up the Google app right now, there is a microphone and there's a QR code yeah, scan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So microphone. voice control, right? Voice control, you, you may not be literate, but almost all of us can converse. Right, right. I, with all due respect, I mean, obviously, I don't want this to be taken the wrong way, but you could train a monkey to push buttons based on what the yeah. pictures were, right? So you don't need yeah. to read human language. No. And this is where things like semiotics get really exciting. So being able to get pictograms that represent things. If you, if yeah, you think yeah. about an awful lot of apps, they're already building that in. So being able to choose from an image menu rather than from a text menu. I think it's very clear that even if even if the whole world was literate, there's still just too much variation in language for it to be easy for people across lots and lots of different countries to be able to interact with this content simply. Now, yeah. uh, so the way we've got around that in a lot of platforms is that we, volunteers have translated it. Right, so if right, you think about right. things like Wikipedia. Wikipedia, yeah, exactly. A lot of people have translated that voluntarily, but that's not sustainable as they're just the sheer volume of content and the number of people. So especially these people that are coming online now that there will be many of them that speak minority languages. And by that, I mean, you know, there's not many people speaking them. I'm not judging those languages in any way. So every time that somebody new comes on, there's a good chance that we'll be adding 
another language to the internet community that hasn't actually had anybody speak that before. So if you think mm. about rural parts of Southeast Asia, there will be people that speak local dialects, and you know, and those will not be catered to on right, the internet. Right. And I think this is this is one of the biggest challenges that people like the United Nations are looking at is. Even if we manage to get these people online, if they can't find any content that they can read and understand, you know, they're completely excluded from the opportunities. And so there's a massive divide. You know, the digital divide is something that we talk about regularly in internet world. Right. Um, but it's it's not just about the technology. It's much more now, especially forward looking. It's much more about cultural elements. Okay, back up a little bit here, Simon. Even if you did create a version which was aimed at people it could just be like you know picture driven version of facebook mm. there's a big stumbling block here terms and conditions could you because i'm just <laughs> as you're talking i was just curious to know i mean t facebook's terms and conditions of all the the four horsemen i suppose are the probably the easiest ones to understand they've only got like four 15 16 18 sorry paragraphs <laughs> but you know yeah. what wh how do you get around that because can you imagine if you were developing that inside facebook and they thought okay Hang on a second, we've got to go and meet the lawyers now. So I think there's there's two bits to it. Um, in terms of literacy, the easy way forward is to have them as an audio file. I just can't bring myself to imagine having to listen through one of those. But then <laughs> if we're honest with ourselves, and I'm obviously not advising anybody to do this, but I am aware of a number of people Everybody. <laughs> friends who never reads these things anyway, yeah, except... Yeah tick move on right obviously you should always read the terms and conditions you will get a nasty surprise at one point in your life where you don't read them but you can imagine that they can translate that into a spoken word version the challenge again though is that you would need to do that for multiple different languages but could you imagine like you had to sit through and listen to the terms and conditions before you used facebook i mean even, even if that was in for us and we were literate yeah, but I think it's really, I was talking to somebody about this yesterday. So uh, the wonderful Tom Ollerton, um, mm. who's a sort of innovation guy, does an awful lot of really exciting stuff on the future of the internet out of the UK. And he was telling me that blind people who use text to voice conversion software, mm. they very quickly discover that they can speed things up. So instead of having it read it out at the speed that you and I are talking about at the moment, mm. A lot of blind people are capable of reading things at five, sorry, listening to things at five times normal spoken speed. Wow. So much as it's a faff for you and I to think about, imagine those 25 pages of Apple's terms and conditions. Yeah, it's right. Suddenly okay. Gotcha. It's still, still a long time. But yeah, you, apparently you can train yourself quite quickly to understand spoken word fast. Five times. They, they, could, so. they could crush audiobooks in no time. I mean, that reading <laughs> list that you've got, they just would disappear, right? That backlog. Yeah. And then I think you'll, you'll end up also with video versions of this. So if you think about when you're on the airplane and right. they've got safety demonstration video, they have sign language, which is obviously not really what we're looking at here because that's still a form of literacy. But you will find that a lot of these important things will be made available to those who do not speak default languages and whatever else. So I think there's a, there's a lot of very clever people that are going to make a lot of money out of finding savvy ways of addressing those problems. Those problems yeah. we can fix, you know, something like a lack of electricity is a lot harder to address, I think. Right, right, right. Um, you know, we're going to be looking at things like solar power becoming a lot more important you're going to you know people like elon musk you can see why he's kind of coming into this conversation as well because all of a sudden he is the battery expert and you go okay i can see that this is not just about very nice luxury cars in silicon valley this is also the world you know, there are, 
Yeah. Yeah, there are three and a half billion people around the world that still don't use the internet. And if each one of them only spent a very small amount of money in a year on e-commerce, that's still a massive opportunity. And you right, can see right, why right. they're going to go straight to mobile. I'm just going to get the data here. India, I don't want to jump back all over the place, but I think it's kind of important. In India, you talked about uh, female literacy. Yeah. Uh, India literacy rate is 63%. So that's what, I'm just trying to do the math here, is 37% of in, female Indians can't read. So that's 37% of what, 1.2 billion, which mm. is about it's what? It's about a third of, it's 400 million people, 400 million, is that yeah. right? Sorry, half of that, 200 million. Men and women, yep. So 200 million, 200 million women in India can't read. So they, I, I guess they're not using the internet. No, and well, if you look at the, the numbers that we've got, so internet users in India are about 460-something million, I think, right. off the top of my head. This is, where, this is where I really wish I had like a really photographic memory. I can never remember these stats off the top of my head. Um, so, yeah, you've still got more people not using the internet in India than using it. We're talking 700 or million people in India do not use the internet today. Um, mm. You will find that the, the vast majority of the non-users are female. So what we do have is a breakdown of Facebook users by gender. And I believe in India, it's roughly three quarters male to a quarter female as the overall Facebook user base. Mm. This is common across a lot of South Asia and a lot of Africa. Um, so there are, if you look at the Middle East as well, there's a significant male bias. Mm-hmm. There are various cultural reasons for this. There are economic reasons for this. And um, so a lot of, especially in India, I think a lot of people see that as a, a gender issue. Actually, right. an awful lot of it isn't really a gender issue. It's a finance issue. Only one person in the family is able to afford a device. And, you know, just because of the traditional ways that families work in a lot of places like South Asia, it's the man that goes out to work, takes the phone to work with him, and therefore he's the internet user. It's not that it's like we're not going to allow women to use it. Right. Well, in some cases. But, yeah, I guess, I guess you're talking it's mostly economic. Can you, can you imagine being that woman who's, who comes online for the first time? It's like you're just going to get bombarded with requests from these guys because not only um, – you're, like, you're a rarity. You're like one in four. Right. There's three guys for every one woman. This is one of the slightly scary issues. In fact, we've been speaking to people around the world about this. And I think we mentioned on the previous podcast about the the number of 18-year-old males using Facebook versus the number of 18-year-old males in existence and the disparity between that. But this is even more interesting. So a big part of that is me lying about my age, saying that I'm a certain age when I'm not. A lot of a lot of, not a lot, a significant number of women in these parts of the world will set the gender of their profile to male to avoid exactly that issue that you're talking mm. about. So the numbers may be slightly distorted by that as well, making them seem even more extreme because unfortunately in a lot of these places there is still a significant you know, sexual harassment issue yeah. and yeah. online that's even more prevalent. So you know, you've got all sorts of little bits and pieces that come into play into these numbers and the story. This is why we did Stats to Stories, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, exactly. But I mean, you could go back to, I mean, just to sort of burrow into that story a little bit further. I mean, if, if a lot of these women are putting their profiles up as male just to Mm. avoid some kind of harassment. I can imagine any kind of dating through Facebook in a place like India must be a complete crap shoe. It's like, (laughs) you don't know who's who here. It's like not only are most of the people on here male, but some of the males are actually men, they're women. And oh my God. I confess I haven't looked at this in any detail recently, but a few years back there was a very famous um, 
let's call it dating, but it's not. I'll come back to that in just a second. Uh, so a dating site called Shadi.com. Yes. Uh, which, yeah. I had a friend that got married through that. Right. And millions, literally millions of couples across India got introduced to each other through Shadi.com yeah. and got married. Um, so uh, sort of introduced marriages, shall we call them, arranged marriages, if you like, are still incredibly common across mm. South Asia. Um, this is not necessarily something that Western people can understand, but it isn't as much of a forced or negative issue as I think a lot of Western people mm. think it might be. Uh, what's the difference between your parents choosing somebody for you versus Tinder choosing somebody for you? It's still a similar sort of algorithm, and it's probably your Controversial, parents. yeah. <laughs> Swipe left. Exactly. So if you look at Shadi.com, I was working for a um, an FMCG brand in India a few years back, and I needed to understand this whole concept of introduced marriages so I set up a profile as a woman not because I was expecting to get lots of men talking to me I just wanted to see what the process was like I wanted to go through all the questions it asked me um, because one of the questions that shadi.com used to ask me was the color of my skin and it, it just you know it shocked me as an outsider but Scottish you know, again, <laughs> peeling wally as we call it uh, beautiful it, it shocked as an outsider, that you might ask me the color of my skin, and yet, you know, on a cultural wow. basis, it's, it's always difficult to make value judgments on that. Do you think that they, did they ask men that as well? Is that just the women? Oh, yeah, asked? yeah, absolutely. No, so it's because of the caste system. Yeah, and yeah. again, it's a, it's a veiled it, way of asking about your caste and your economic standing, isn't it? Yes, and it's, it, I, I don't feel comfortable with it, but again, I'm not right, really right. sufficient to make value judgments on that. But once I'd set up my profile, I then was bombarded by all these you know, requests for introductions from men all around India. Yeah. It, was, it was a little bit, it felt terrible because I had to write back and say, I'm terribly sorry, I'm not really a woman. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a, a male from Scotland. What was, um, did you upload a profile and everything? Did you, what was your, um, I don't want to give you away your name because obviously some people might still be contacting you, but what, um, what was your profile like, just out of curiosity? What did you put up there? I was... So I was a young woman from Mumbai who worked in IT. Right. I didn't have a profile picture, so I didn't lie at least about that. Sorry. Um, I had a, you know, I had a, an Indian name, and I sort of talked about a little bit about my dreams for the future and stuff like that. Partly because I wanted to get myself into the persona of the person that I was trying right. to sort of method acting. My, Good man. Right. It's probably terrible. It goes against the terms and conditions. I, I apologise to Shadi.com <laughs> for distorting their data. But you know, these things are fascinating when you when you look at. We've deviated away from the No, I want to know. You know. Go back, because this, this is a really interesting part of the story, because, you know, we're sort of revealing stories that people don't really, you know, touch on their day-to-day -day lives. I mean, people just think, as you say, people thinking about sharing what they ate for lunch, but, yeah. you know, it's a key part of people's lives. What, what sort of, I mean, what kind of requests did you get? How did people contact you? Were they sort of pretty upfront, like, you know, let's get married, or? Yes. They were? <laughs> okay, they didn't have a photo. Um, and it, it was straight in there. It's like, let me tell you why I'm a great, prospect for a husband and right, it right. was you know they, it was it was like i said i feel really terrible about it thinking back now because they put a lot of effort into these things i don't know how many of them were stock that they sent to lots of women but you know, it was right. just you know here is why i am um you know reliable as a husband or you know as a prospective husband this is my job this is how i would take care of my family and it's just like if you think about you know, uh, like you said, the internet from this perspective is not just about uploading photos of your lunch and playing, playing Candy Crush. If you think about the motivations that are bringing people yeah. on. So we talked about social media. In my mind, Tinder sort of sits at the very edge of what you might term social media. Obviously, it strays into different territories as well. But it is 
social in the sense that it introduces people to each other and they can then have conversations. So dating apps, whether it's a shady.com, whether it's a, a Tinder, whatever else it may be, actually for certain groups around the world, that mm -hmm. is an incredibly important motivation to be able to find prospective partners. Um, and, you know, if, if you're in a society where arranged marriages are still a big thing, uh, parents will be doing that on children's behalf as well. So that you can see how that brings on older demographics into the mix as well. So, you know, they, they're sort of talking to some of their friends about how difficult it is to help their children find prospective partners. And then those parents' friends say, ah, have you tried this service? And they get online just yeah. so that they can do yeah. those sorts of things. So I'm guessing that's a relatively small motivating factor. But nonetheless, it is an incredibly powerful service. Because you know, mm. these are some of the world's biggest, in your life, finding a life partner is one of the biggest decisions that you'll ever make. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if, especially in India as well, where there's less mobility. I mean, I'm not talking about technology. I'm talking about social mobility. Mm. Is that there's more, I mean, like you and I, if we were on the market, sorry, ladies, we're not, we're taken. But if we were on the market, just hypothetically speaking, we could just go out and you could meet somebody randomly in a bar. I mean, if you had to, if you had to do it like that. So mm. there's a lot more opportunity. Whereas in India, you know, you'd spend most of your time at work with people you work with and the, I mean apart from maybe in places like Bangalore and so on there isn't a lot of that sort of social culture that you'd you know expect in places like some you know like Singapore or you know developed yeah. cities and so on so the point I'm getting to is that you have less opportunity to meet the right partner and therefore that looming prospect of dad or you know uncle whatever uncle Ramit organizing a organizing an introduction for you is sort of there, isn't it? It's sort of looming on the rise and you've got to work it out. So you've got to get onto these social media services and find somebody before they sort of, you know, match you up with like the boss's cousin or whatever. Or with their help. I think a lot of the time, you know, because culturally this is something that they've, you know, that predominant and obvious thing that's going to happen in their life. So, you know, we look at it from an outside perspective and think it might not be what we would want. But I think for a, if you think about rural India, right, where mm. culturally still women would not be allowed to go out alone, um, especially not younger women and not in any kind of social setting. Again, I'm, I'm trying to say this without any kind of value judgment. I'm simply reporting the facts here. And if you think about that, if you don't really have any opportunity to meet people of the opposite sex, even get to know what it's like to interact with members of the opposite sex, and yourself in a bar you've got no life experience that tells you how to deal with that situation yeah, yeah. you know if you grew up in a place like scotland like me where you sort of you know went to a mixed mixed gender school and your whole life from about the age of five was dating <laughs> 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 kind of creepy but you know it's like you, you grew up in a culture where that is something that is just exactly. the accepted norm and then if you know in places like rural southeast asia you you still got a lot of challenge with that. That's not necessarily something that is culturally encouraged, shall mm. we say. I think Southeast Asia is probably a bit different, but Southern Asia in particular, these are still challenges. And then the Middle East as well, you've still got a lot of that challenge too. So when we talk about the Middle East, I think a lot of people default to thinking about places like Dubai and Saudi Arabia. But if you if you think about the more rural parts of the Middle East, it, it's still... It, very similar in terms of cultural context and socioeconomic right. context, Southern Asia. So there's still a lot of people out there in rural areas who live a farming existence where, you know, the, even if they live in a village, there's only a couple of hundred people there. So mm. socially, your pool is not exactly massive. Yeah, your gene pool as well. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, I want to I want to share a quick story, Simon, if I may, mm. just about India, because I think it's important to, for those who don't have any experience in India. I mean, obviously, hopefully some of our listeners are from India. 
But um, those who don't sort of really understand the gender issue as well, I'll, I'll give a sort of a, an anecdote, which I think sort of explains in a way how it plays out in very subtle ways. I mean, I used to have an office in India and we had a whole bunch of young workers in there who were doing all kinds of sort of back office tasks for my company. And there were two women. There were, I think they were cousins. I mean, let's say women, they were like 21, maybe. Mm. They were cousins or si- I can't remember what the relationship was. They were sisters. Um, spoke English, no problem, educated. Um, and every, every, I spent about two weeks there with the, the team sort of training them up. And these, these two girls, they were fantastic at what they did. You know, they used to uh, always come in on time, you know, stick around, ask questions and so on. One day they came in wearing traditional saris, like, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, that was, I thought it was interesting. Like, why did they choose to wear that? And then the next day they, they came in, I, I don't know what, maybe it was a festival or something like that. I don't, I don't remember what the reason was. Or maybe they just thought, I just want to wear this, right? Mm. And then the next day they came in wearing jeans. I thought, that's cool. Mm. You know, like they just choose to wear that, what they want. And I asked the, the office manager who was sort of, you know, like my go-between in many issues, who recruited these people, um, why, they, why they decided to come in jeans that day. And um, he, he, he sort of, you know, I don't know, whatever, whatever reason. And then the next day they came back in saris and every day they came in their traditional dress. So he obviously had a word with them and said, um, you know, Mr. Brown wants you to wear traditional dress. Oh, no. That was how it's translated because that's probably what they thought it meant. And I was just asking you yeah. a curious question, like, oh, that's interesting. Why? And it's like, why? <laughs> it's not straight. It's uncomfortable a little bit. You realize that you just asked a question that was out of oh, interest. Yeah. And then suddenly it changed. Yeah. I, but I think that as well, that's really interesting, right? So you look at a lot of these parts of the world, whether it's Southern Asia, whether it's Southeast Asia, all these places, they've got very strong cultural heritage. And some of that is traditional dress. Some of it is ways of thinking, all these kinds of things. And once people get access to something like the internet, more than any other medium that we've ever had as humans, the ability to see what people around the world do and for that to influence mm-hmm. you is much, much greater. So, you know, we talk a lot about globalization and negative impacts but at this point it's choice so i think you know what was interesting in your your story just there is that you know they chose to come in in jeans one day they chose to come in in traditional dress another day and that i'm guessing to a certain extent was a choice that they'd made based Mm. on Mm. today i want to be this kind of person and you know other days i want to represent something else and i think it's really interesting when you go to all these different parts of asia wherever it is in the world in fact the reference points that they have culturally increasingly being shaped by access they have to the internet so you go to rural indonesia for example pretty much most of those people are using facebook or they know somebody who is and that has then started to shape their perspectives on an awful lot of different issues whether it's even if it's just following sports you know something as random as that Mm. these these services provide access to that in ways that you know they wouldn't have been able to get it on a tv station it's not like you go down the down the pub and watch multiple sports in rural Indonesia. Do you know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's sort of like all of a sudden you've got access to a world, literally a whole world of information, entertainment, culture that you wouldn't have had previously. A lot of people feel uncomfortable about that because inevitably there are bits of culture that are going to get lost. Mm. But I think if you flip that, culture has always evolved and it's a very, very fluid thing. If you think about what that means on the more optimistic side, what is this going to do to shape cultures in positive ways and how quickly is that going to happen? You know, if, you, if you look at the fact that a billion people 
those next billion that we were sort of talking about earlier, they're going to come online in the next three to four years based on current rates of growth. That is a dramatic, dramatic change in terms of people who have probably, and I'm, I'm making generalizations, but the data backs this up. They've never had access to TV. Right. They don't read and write, so they've not been reading newspapers and books and magazines. It's like they've not had media before. You know, they've had people telling them stuff. They may have been watching, I don't know, they may have been hearing the radio, for example. They may have been hearing that in a cafe or at home. But in terms of the impact of media on their lives, it is so much less than we would expect in the West. You know, almost all of our lives are media here. And yet suddenly, with this little thing in my pocket my phone that i can now access the entire world you can see how all of a sudden you've got dramatic cultural and societal change coming through that it could be quite scary it could unsettle an awful lot of cultures and Mm. you can see there are certain leaders in the world that would definitely not want that you can see how you would end up with things like the internet getting shut down or whatever else but i'm I'm always optimistic about these things right Um, I, i see the huge potential for positive change in there as well i went to Bhutan, the, the, oh, the, wow. that tiny mountain kingdom, right up Envious. in, yeah, I went there in 2003, I think, or 2004, like on a tour, you can't go into Bhutan on your own, you have to go as a part of a tour, mm. but I was so curious, I wanted to get into it, it was, you know, the kingdom of the, the thunder dragons, or whatever it's called, so uh-huh. I got into Bhutan, and the, the interesting thing about that, because when you were talking, I remembered that I went there the year, this is 2003, bear in mind, that TV was introduced. Oh my goodness. Yeah. They're not a backward society in any way. They just had banned TV. Yeah. And TV had been introduced like earlier in the year. I might have my dates wrong. It might be a year either way, but you know, what I saw as I went to Bhutan, <laughs> everybody was glued to tea. Like you went to a restaurant or a cafe and these were sort of, you know, like for locals, but they would bring in people from the hotel mm. And everybody was watching TV. That's sort of really annoying thing when you go into a, a cafe or a, a local sort of eatery <laughs> and you want to talk to people and everybody's kind of looking over your shoulder. But it was like yeah. that straight away. And people were like absolutely enthralled by this thing. You know, there was advertising and all this kind of thing going on. So your point about being positive, I'm curious to know what the sort of that as a case study, how did that work out? <laughs> are they happier now? Because they always talk about gross national happiness, don't yeah, they? Did, are they better they off with all this media? Because, you know, maybe in the context of education, like with the mobile phone, you can access certain things. I don't know. Is it always a good thing? Well, it's definitely not always a good thing, but there is the potential for it to be more positive than negative. And I think a lot of that is making sure that the right, I I saw that was a massively valued judgment, the right services, the the services that are constructive and, you know, societally beneficial are the ones that come to the fore. I think there is an awful lot of concern if you look at, you know, especially if you talk about young people, wherever they are in the world, the concerns about cyberbullying and things like that. So there is inevitably the danger that these things are used for bad as well as for good. I think the media like to sensationalize a lot of these stories. Um, Mm. So, you know, reporting on these issues tends to get them a lot of um, extra attention. I'm not in any way trying to dismiss these as important issues, but I think we rarely see the positive stories. So we don't see the fact that suddenly all of these women in rural parts of Southeast Asia now have access to all sorts of education and cultural and official services. So I was, um, this is a story I was, 
relating yesterday, so it's just sort of come back into my mind. I remember a couple of years ago, so the, the reports that we talk about a lot on the, the podcast here, so the, the data reports that I produce, I had a lady from Timor-Leste. She was working with right. a uh, an NGO. So she was a Western lady, but um, she's been living in Timor-Leste, which is a tiny Southeast Asian nation just off the sort of edge of Indonesia. Um, and she was saying, do you have any more information on the number of people by age that use Facebook in Timor-Leste? And I said, like, well, I can get that data. I'm just curious to know what you want it for. And she said that she was working with an NGO who wanted to bring sexual health education to teens in Timor-Leste because it wasn't something that was being covered under mm. any of the sort of national curriculum. And you think, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I sort of when you said you wanted Facebook data, I was a little bit skeptical. Yeah. I was like, I'm not entirely sure this is the top of the list of important things, and yet she was using Facebook to distribute and to share, you know, very important mm. life information to teens that wouldn't have got it anywhere else. So you know, I mean, Facebook posting pictures of our lunch. We keep on joking about these things, but at the same time, these platforms can deliver hugely important benefits to society and to mm. individuals as well. So I think we're always in danger as privileged Western onlookers that we sort of see this through the lens of how we use these platforms. And I think we miss an awful lot of the the real reasons why these services can be of benefit. Yeah, in our own little bubble, we don't really right. see it, do we? Fascinating, Simon. Is there anywhere in uh, Asia where there are people who are not online? I mean, where's the sort of, I mean, we've obviously talked about India, but I want to sort of think about yeah. the, the developed markets. Is there anywhere that's sort of like a, I don't know, there was a phase, I mean, we get a bit of it here in Japan where people refuse to use Line, for example, or refuse yes. to be on Facebook or refuse. Is there sort of a trend in that? Is there sort of, I mean, I don't want to take away too far from the, the, the next billion, but, I, you know, the people that are skewing the stats, are there a sort mm. of a 5%, 5%, 10% anywhere? Um, so you, you've still got a lot of countries around Asia where you've not got very high penetration. So, you know, in places like, um, Japan, where you've got more than 90% of the population using the internet, then clearly you've got young young children who are just too young to use it. And there's a selection of older people who are just, they're not going to get online because they don't see the obvious benefits. And then you've got a group of people in the middle who, like you said, they just refuse to do it for whatever reason, in the same way you've always had people that refuse to have TV or read the newspaper or whatever else. They just, whether they're trying to prove that they're different or they genuinely just don't want to be sort of manded in with the, the rest of the population, if you like. I think mm. there's, there's always going to be people who want to be slightly different. But I think in terms of around Asia, you've got countries like Laos, Cambodia, where penetration is still you know, comparatively lower versus mm. a lot of the rest of the region. You've then got places like South Korea and Singapore and Japan, where it's just ridiculously high in terms of the penetration rate. So I think that's one of the things that fascinates me most about digital in Asia is it's so diverse still. Mm. So if you sort of in, in that global bit of our report, so in our digital in 2018 reports, this is my quick plug here, um, in the digital in 2018 reports, we've got 5,000 charts worth of data, every country in the world. But in the global overview, we do a lot of comparisons. So, you know, we've got charts that show you 40 different countries. Um, so internet use across 40 countries and that you can sort of very quickly see where different countries sit within mm. that. So I'm just, just trying to load that chart up. I was trying to give myself a bit of leeway there. Um, so in terms of the countries that have lower levels of penetration, what's quite interesting, India, out of the 40 economies that we feature in those comparative charts, India is the lowest with only 34% oh. penetration. Right. But even Indonesia, so Indonesia is still only 50% penetration. Like you should think of is that, that includes mobile, right? 
So, yeah, any form of internet whatsoever wow. for personal or business use as well, half the population still Indonesia, does not use it. fascinating. Yeah. Huh. China, only 53% penetration. Right. Now, that's growing, but still, I mean, the world's right, right. most but populous nation. That has to be the rural market. I mean, China's, we only really talk about the tier one, tier two cities, right? I mean, outside yeah. of that, there's 500 million people, you know, living out in the Northwest somewhere. Yeah, and it's not just big in terms of its population. If you look at China on a map, it's absolutely vast. Yeah. You imagine that the just logistical challenges in getting internet to these people. It's mountainous, it's remote, do they have reliable electricity? Well, probably, but, you know, it's probably still for a household one of the, the more expensive things that they need to invest in. So I think you're looking at that distribution around Asia. I think mm. it's very easy to think about Asia as being these big glossy cities like Tokyo and Singapore. And you forget that an awful lot of Asia is still paddy fields and a sort of rural lifestyle. And mm. that is still just about the majority. I mean it's it's very evenly balanced. 50-50. That, that, that data on Indonesia is fascinating, though. I mean, mm. what? So Indonesia is 250 million people, and you're saying 50% haven't touched the internet yet? Apparently not. That's right. what the data says. And then if you take it into social media, I'm just going to quickly try and pull those numbers up, because Indonesia, interestingly, is one of the more social yeah, countries yeah. in the world. Um, Twitter and Blackwell, Blackberry, BBM. <laughs> Do you remember these things? Yeah, exactly. We're going back to the last millennium, aren't we? But yes, yeah. Twitter, even Twitter. I mean, I was surprised. I, you know, give us the data, Simon. You're, you're the data man. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to take steal your thunder. <laughs> Let's argue about who has the better stats. Yeah. Um, so Twitter actually massive in Japan. Let's come back to that in just a minute. But in no. Indonesia, rats, I said fifty percent of Indonesia using the internet 49 percent of indonesia is using social media so pretty much every right. single person that is on the internet in indonesia is using social media and i think yeah. that's fascinating so yeah, it's yeah. a very is big that, drive is that sort of comparable to other countries i mean no so it's, right. let me rephrase that yes there are a lot of countries around the world where the data that we have it's it's only really possible to understand the number of internet users by looking at social media users. Let me give you some well, context. Yeah, everybody, yeah. everybody gets confused by it. Um, the ability to count the number of internet users is far more difficult than the ability to count social media users because there is no single source of internet provision. So even in, even in the most developed nations, you've got multiple internet service providers mm -hmm. and even if they were to tell you how many customers they had if they, they deliver to a household they may not know how many individuals within that household use it so being able to count the number of internet users is incredibly difficult mm. whereas on a platform like facebook for obvious commercial reasons they need to know exactly how many people have used it any given time. So in a lot of countries around the world, especially in the more developing nations where governments either don't have the means or they don't have the sort of motivation to count internet users on a regular basis, a lot of the time we're using Facebook users as a proxy for overall internet use. I'm guessing if you can use Facebook, you've got an internet connection, fairly yeah, safe or something, yeah. right? So in a lot of countries around the world, we report that the number of um, social media users and the number of internet users is the same. So right. that was just a little bit of context. Good. Um, no, that's really good to know. Within the Indonesia bit, the number is obviously ever so slightly higher. Um, sometimes numbers go up and down in social media use. So we do see um, 
month on month declines for some Facebook users. And it's not usually a massive drop. It's just that they round the numbers to the nearest million. So if you can imagine you you lose sort of 5,000, but it just tips you between where the, the cutoff for rounding goes. Right. And so it looks like a dramatic difference. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm sort of losing my train of thought here. And I remember that we were, we were talking about Indonesia and 50%. So we're just curious, I mean, curious to know what was going on in Indonesia, because you said they were, I mean, we've talked about Southeast Asia and the sort of the level mm. of uh, social media use last time in, in Digital Lives Asia number one. So, yep. you know, and we, we do also had like an interesting, I don't know if we got anywhere with it, but we had the hypothesis that there was some relationship between social media usage and how friendly people were, because we found at the bottom of the yes. chart was the UK, France, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, Indonesians, I mean, You've been to Indonesia. I've been to Indonesia. It's like, it's a beautiful country. It's full of friendly people. They're massive mm. social media users, but half of them are not online. What's going on? So I had a really interesting conversation, interestingly, with somebody up in Japan uh, last week who, when we were going through these charts, made the interesting point, um, especially on things like the amount of time that people spend on social media and whatever else, that it is quite closely not directly but it's quite closely correlated with the average age of the population so if you think about oh, yeah. it right the places where people spend the most time on social media philippines brazil indonesia thailand they have relatively young populations whereas the countries where people spend the least amount of time on the internet netherlands germany south korea japan they do have older population so because these are average amounts of time you can see why sure enough older folks in those countries may be using it but they're probably not on six hours a day watching all these videos and chatting to their friends endlessly on whatsapp and whatever else so there may be an age influence in there. there's cultural issues for sure so I, i'm still confident that it's hadn't thought of friendliness that. yeah uh, I, I, I still I, no hey look wait wait i'm not going to give up on that hypothesis here's here's what i think right <laughs> is that because they are generally unfriendly countries. They are not reproducing because they're not getting together. <laughs> Seriously, you, you've, got to, you've got to make connections. I mean, we talked about dating. They're not having yeah. babies. And as a result of that, the average age is increasing. That's my theory. And I stand by it. I mean, it's like, you know, people talk about red wine and, you know, people who drink red wine uh -huh. versus people who drink beer and people who drink red wine live longer. But, you know, it's not, I don't think it's necessarily red wine that, Makes you cause and effect. I think yeah. it's it's the fact that probably wealthier people drink red wine, and you know, like you know, <laughs> the the down by the hill people like me will drink beer. So you know, I think that's probably what we're looking at. I think it's a, it's a hypothesis, but I'm throwing it out. That's that's why we do these things on Digital Lives Asia because yeah. we can throw out some wild hypotheses. We're going to get some feedback on that from listeners. Go on. We're going to have lots of people. Move on. Quickly cover on, my tracks, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> I hastened why this was Graham's point. I am standing by my data rather than my hypotheses at this point. <laughs> but I think, you know, it, there is definitely cause and effect in a lot of this stuff. And I think whenever we look at data, I think we need to be very clear about are we seeing the result of a specific or is this a consequence of something else? Um, and it, it's that bit that, you know, that's why we are doing stats from stories or stories from stats, rather. There are always really interesting reasons why certain things happen some of them are just you know basic logistical challenges but a lot of the really interesting stuff behind this data is the cultural societal bit so whenever you see a number that doesn't make sense look for the story because that's the bit that will help you make sense of it and it's a lot more interesting than the number yeah let's um let's sort of go back to the beginning because we talked about you know your travels and mm. you've been obviously you, you've published this report I mean, you spent forever writing the report because there's like 5,000 slides in it. I mean, it's a phenomenal piece of work. 
So, you know, you're, you are allowed to get out there now. You're allowed to emerge from the office and go out and do a bit of traveling. So you're going all over the place. So you, you've been in Japan, you're in the UK, you're heading to Scotland, all, all the, the glamour gigs. Where Absolutely. else have you been? Because I'm curious to know what sort of, as a part of your traveling, are you actually getting to see things going on? Because you're so immersed in the world of stats. Do you actually get to see, like somebody says, okay, look, this is what's going on here. How does that sort of work out for you? Was it just sort of hotel, conference, hotel, airport? Oh, absolutely not. No, 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 no. I refuse to do that. Um, so I'm not getting out to see a lot of the rural um, populations, which is frustrating because I always look forward to being able to see some of that. Um, so on this particular bit of the tour, I've done Sydney, Tokyo, London. So three you know, big mm. sort of international cities, if you like. But even just going to those three cities, you know, I, I make a point of going out and looking around what's going on in the street, getting on the subway and looking at what people are doing on their devices and stuff like that. And it's, it still fascinates me. It doesn't matter how many times you go to a city that's not your own, you're going to spot stuff almost immediately that's fascinating. So walking around Tokyo, you'll know this because you, you live in Tokyo, but walking around Tokyo and all the, there are all these posters around the, the uh, what's it called, the subway, I don't mm. know what they call it. Yeah, but anyway, the, the train system in Tokyo, and they've got all these signs saying, "Do not use your phone while walking. Please, oh, yeah. switch, your, please switch your phone off while you're on the train." It's the sort of thing that anybody in places like Singapore, if you've if you've ever been to Singapore in the last couple of years, you you've never actually seen anybody's face. You've only seen the top of their head because they're they're perpetually bent down looking at a screen, Hello. even while they're walking along. So, uh, what's fascinating about Singapore for me is um, you've got um, a great subway system in singapore as well but you know you've got to the interchanges so people moving from one line to the other and you've got these lovely sort of slick open areas where people walk from one train line to the other and people are constantly you know they, they're on the train watching the video they don't stop it while they walk between stations and platforms so it's just all these zombies walking around watching youtube videos or you know netflix or whatever else as they're walking along they're all bumping into each other it's bizarre it's like watching ants you know they all sort of bump into each other and crawl around each other i love it now, uh, it's, it's the apocalypse isn't it you know you're talking about <laughs> that that those signs in tokyo they're they're actually quite visual aren't they they'll, they'll have like a picture like a cartoon man and he'll be looking at the phone and then the next thing he'll be bumping into somebody or there'll be another one where he's falling onto the track. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it's like, if you do this, you end up like this. It's very sort of visual and done in a sort of an anime style. Yeah, these, these great sort of like, because you know, anybody that's ever spent any time in Japan knows that culturally they are incredibly considerate to other people. So you've, you've got these like great messages that just make you feel incredibly guilty. <laughs> so it's like using your phone is inconsiderate. And it's like, Oh my goodness. Oh, it's like my mother telling me when I was a child, that I've been totally inconsiderate. Oh, yeah. It's like, ouch, I feel very ashamed of myself. So I just think it's fascinating when you look at the cultural bits that go around these yeah. things you go somewhere like sydney and it's absolutely acceptable for two friends to sit at a cafe and one of them's talking to the other and the other one's sitting there on their phone doing something else think, oh, i hate that yeah I, at that age group it seems totally acceptable yeah. whether people like it yeah. is different yeah whereas i think if that happened in tokyo you might see a slightly different reaction no there'll be two of them doing it in tokyo like two of them i, I see couples like often if i go out and eat a couple will sit across the table and they'll both be looking at their phones. Different, that's different weird. They're talking to each other online. It's just <laughs> no, they're talking because that's the thing that they're, they're there physically, but they're elsewhere. They're talking to other people. I think that there would be a really, really interesting basis for some deep sort of psychological, sociological studies is looking at 
what people feel when they're using their phones in the company of somebody else. So is it a yeah. sense of guilt? Is it a sense of, I don't want to be here in the first place? All sorts of great stuff. And um, so, yeah, so I was, I was telling you about other places I've been in London because we've had such incredible snow over the last few days. It's yeah. just been really interesting. Uh, one of the bits that stood out for me is, you know, you see people stopping to check phones and they're taking gloves off. Not everybody's got those um, gloves that allow you to carry on using it. And it's just, it got me thinking about the role of voice control, which I was going to talk about a lot earlier. We've run out of time, so we need to save it for the, the mm. next episode talking about voice control. But it just fascinates me that if you think about things like Apple's EarPods, I know jumped back into sort of um, the Western extreme world here. But applications are not really about an excuse to you to buy more accessories. They're much more about enabling you to use your phone without taking it out of your pocket and looking at the screen. Yeah. So I think, you know, when you look at weather like this, we've had blizzards and sun zero temperatures, and you don't really want to be taking your gloves off and use on, on you know, sort of ice and things freezing off see very quickly why things like voice control if i just want to get from a to b and it says walk 100 meters down here and turn left you can suddenly see the practical benefits of these things so even just looking at that you know this is just going to be interesting when this becomes a lot more common when, when it's sort of something i don't need to buy lots of separate devices to make work i can see how they'll completely change the experience as well because if i spend a lot less time looking at my screen to change the advertising it's going to change things like the kind of content. So podcasts will be uh, probably a, a very popular thing if you've only got audio going in. It's a lot better than video. So we're we're building for that. We're yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm I'm playing for that long term that long term gamble on the podcast future. <laughs> okay, so Simon, I'm going to put you on the spot. You're a busy man. You're flying all over the world. But you know, if you could have the opportunity to go somewhere rural, or it doesn't have to be rural, but where the next Billion are going to come online in Asia. Where would you go and what sort of reasons would you go there for? I'm going to go rural Cambodia, no question. Um, so it's, it's one of those places that represents all sorts of future in my mind. And um, so, you know, socioeconomic uh, factors are a big part of this. So the economy in Cambodia is accelerating quite quickly. You're seeing a lot of people now suddenly having the financial empowerment to be able to come online to be able to do these things where they might not have been able to do it before but they've wanted to but also because you know the rural setting a lot of Cambodia is still that very sort of traditional uh, jungle setting if you like and I'm not meaning that in any way judgmentally but it's like you know you've got palm trees and it's a very rural setting so you've got um, socioeconomic advancement, you've still got a very rural setting. But the third bit of that, and the reason why I would really want to go there, is we were talking earlier about the the friendliness factor. So places like Thailand and Indonesia. I think of all the people that I meet when I travel around, I think Cambodians are probably one of the most friendly. And it, I see from that that there's a very good chance that the way that they use social media is going to be something that teaches me a huge amount about you know the way that people are interacting with each other because they're going to be doing that for the first time i'd really like to sort of just sit there and look over their shoulder in a very creepy mm. kind of way mm. and learn what they do the first time that they use it what they're hoping to get out of that what their sort of you know what their optimistic sides of things are and just learn from those first experiences for them and then when you see that it's very easy to translate that not just to other people that will come online after them but also people all around the world even in very developed nations because when you can see those motivations being expressed for the very first time you get a much clearer sense of what they are you know a lot of people that use 
social media day to day, they get a bit jaded or they just get very efficient about it. And you sort of miss a lot of the magic if you watch mm. them doing stuff. So, yeah, I think sort of going and spending time in rural Cambodia would give some amazing insights. And you used to do this sort of stuff as well in your uh, your mobile youth days. You used to travel around and report these amazing insights. I used to steal them all from you. <laughs> I used to make videos. I used to go out there and, yeah. or I had to get the, I, like for example, people in rural India to go out and make videos. So, mm. yeah, no, it's fascinating. I mean, yeah, exactly. We, and you know, all you need is uh, like what's Cambodia? Phnom Penh is it? Phnom Penh. That's, that's Phnom, the capital. Yeah. Phnom Penh tell to Twitter, tweet us, just say, hey, look, let's get Simon over here because you know Simon. Simon will go out. He'll. he'll do it at cut rates because it sounds like he really wants to get to <laughs> Cambodia Definitely. at a snip. Get totally. out there. I'll be all up for that. And then um, get yeah. the video out as well. So I'll, I'll do a little bit of, a, you know, recording people using these things and just, you know, showing what the differences are between that. And then hopefully we'll try and get some video from you of people doing it in Tokyo and then we can yeah, compare yeah. and contrast. Exactly. But I think, you know, doing it in Cambodia on a beach, swinging in a hammock sounds a lot more attractive, though, doesn't it? I think that's... <laughs> yeah, head down to Sanukville. They do have a nice little beach in Cambodia, actually. I was there about 10 years ago. Beautiful, beautiful place. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so... Um, We're lining yeah, it up with... as you speak. It's all work. <laughs> it's almost like I'm pitching it, isn't it? Yeah, you are, you're pitching it. You're designing your own pitch, your, your dream gig. Yeah, no, that sounds amazing. And I, I'd love to do something like that myself. But, you know, I'm I'm now out of the loop in that, that world. But, you know, I was doing similar kind of things in the mobile youth days, as you say. But that was just, it was just fun. Because, I mean, if you love travel and you love culture as much as you do, you know, to go and sort of marry those two together and to be able to go and... Yeah. It's just amazing. I mean, because, you know, it, why why not? Why not have sort of, you know, that kind of a lifestyle where you can go out and do these things? Because it's fascinating, you know. And, and like Absolutely. some of the stuff you talked about today, it's like it, it adds real value. You know, like you're talking about in Timor Leicester. Yeah, definitely. You know, and UNESCO and so on. I mean, it's, it's awesome what you're doing. So, and I'm really educational tonight as well. Really fascinating. And, and you know, the, the dating stuff as well. I think there's still yeah. there's still more to talk. I want to know about your adventures on Shadi.com. <laughs> Yeah, I think I'm probably going to leave that one there that I could get into all sorts of dangerous territory. But I think, you know, maybe as part of I'll see if I can find some stats that allow us to sort of come back a little bit on that on the next show. Yeah, I think there's a danger that we could very easily fall down rabbit holes on that. one. Yeah, exactly. Give away your game. Yeah. This is not the only dating site that you've got a, a masked identity <laughs> on just for, purely for the purposes of research. Absolutely. A hundred million users and they're all me in different guises. <laughs> hey, Simon, I had a lot of fun. Awesome. And cool. uh, we'll you put all the details in the show notes and where you can get hold of Simon's report. Get yourself a copy because it's absolutely free, right? Well, it's free now. I don't know if you're going to charge yeah. for it in the future. I mean, but- no, it's, well, there's no plans to charge for it. All 5,000 charts, absolutely free. Go in and dig out the data for the countries that you're interested in. Yeah. And if you want Simon to speak at your corporate gig, <laughs> you know where to get hold of him. And especially if you're in Canada, not Canada, Cambodia, got the I hotline. He's ready. Let's do it alphabetically. <laughs> Going to work our way through. All right, Simon. So yeah, let back next time, back next month with more from the same, more Digital Lives Asia. Look forward to it. Thanks, Graham. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at atp.show.